welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today's episode is about algorithmic biases. And um, we interviewed a group of people. That's the premiere for us, five people. We, ha- we talked to Francesco Fabri, David Solanis, Lorenzo Porcaro, and Marcy Karami Hagigi uh, from the University Pompo Fabra. Um, they are PhD students um, in the group of Carlos Castillo, um, or cooperation partners of Carlos Castillo, who is also with us on the podcast. Hello, so I'm Carlos Castillo. I'm a professor at Universidad Pompeu Fabra, and I lead the Web Science and Social Computing Group. Uh, I'm Lorenzo, and I'm a PhD student at the University Pompeu Fabra in Barcelona. And uh, I work in the Music Information Research Lab, led by Emilia Gomez, but I'm also collaborating with the Web Science and Social Computing Group, uh, led by Carlos here. My name is Marzia. I am uh, also a PhD student uh, in University of Pompeu Fabra, and uh, I work uh, on risk assessment tools of uh, recidivism. And uh, uh, my supervisor is uh, Carlos Castillo. Uh, my name is David Solans. I'm a PhD student in the topic of algorithmic fairness under the, under the supervision of uh, Professor Carlos Castillo. Uh, Francesco here. I'm a PhD student uh, at the Pompeo Fabra University. I'm mainly working algorithmic fairness related to rankings and recommender systems. I'm advised by Carlos Castillo and Francesco Bonchi since I have a scholarship from a research center in Catalonia, Euricat. So welcome to our show. Um, and today's topic is algorithmic fairness. And to be honest, uh, I think not many people can like from top of the head just say what it is. So maybe uh, Carlos, maybe you could just give us like a very uh, basic introduction to what is actually meant with algorithmic fairness. Uh, Algorithmic fairness is a new field of study within computer science, which deals with how um, data-driven decision support systems and data-driven um, decision-making systems and, and automated decision-making based on data can lead to discrimination. So I think the field is st- still establishing itself. I would say that the largest umbrella term is fairness, accountability, and transparency in computing systems. That will be the, the, the big umbrella term. And algorithmic fairness being a loosely defined field within that umbrella. But how can we imagine, like, on the at the work level, basically? So what exactly is your group doing? Is it dealing with the more technical solutions or the social solutions? Because so, just to be, basically my, my idea of algorithmic biases, whatever, uh, whatever they are, is that they are introduced by people, not really by programs. So maybe I'm wrong. So 
I think that the, let's let's try to find first perhaps a definition of what is discrimination, right? So discrimination is something that we do all the time. We discriminate when we uh, conduct a job interview. So we find try to discriminate between someone who is fit for a job and someone who is unfit for a job, right? But when there is a special kind of discrimination, which is called group discrimination, and in group discrimination, you treat people differently depending on some socially salient characteristic of them. So you treat women differently from men, you treat immigrants differently from nationals, you treat young people differently from older people, and so on, right? So that would be group discrimination. And group discrimination can be problematic because we are all individuals and should be treated according to our own characteristics. And, and moreover, international law and national law forbids certain kinds of discrimination. Now, uh, there is a certain kind of group discrimination, which is called statistical group discrimination. And statistical group discrimination is based on a statistical belief. So suppose, and this is perhaps the, the typical example of statistical group discrimination, suppose you decide not to hire for a job a highly qualified woman because you believe that women are more likely to take parental leave. In that case, you will be discriminating against this woman based on some statistical belief. If, on the contrary, you decided not to hire this highly qualified woman because she told you that she intends to take parental leave, then that would be non-statistical group discrimination. And statistical group discrimination, if you don't think of, uh, if you try to disregard the idea that there needs to be animosity, because a computer system, of course, may not have any animosity against a certain group, then decision support systems and automated decision-making systems based on data, they can engage in a statistical group discrimination because what they gather from data are these statistical beliefs. Mm -hmm. So this is relevant for any machine learning um, AI applications, basically. Yeah, this is based like machine learning is usually referred by this short name, like machine learning, but the 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 actual name or the the complete name of the that field is a statistical machine learning, right? So it's how um, computer can learn based on certain statistics. So this is basically applies to fields where statistical machine learning is being applied. But it also applies to other fields, such as data mining. So what happens when you want to extract patterns from the data? And these patterns that you end up extracting perhaps reflect or emphasize or exaggerate certain differences between groups that may exist. Uh, also, algorithmic fairness appears in uh, information retrieval, so the, 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 the mechanisms by which things are shown in a ranked list in a search engine or in another system. And it also affects, affects recommender systems. So this field of fairness, accountability, transparency in computer system is mostly concerned with applications in data mining, machine learning, information retrieval, and recommender systems. So all kind of data intensive applications. Okay, but then, so uh, when you then talk about algorithm fairness, I mean, I guess it's about also finding solutions to this problem, right? But how can you, how, how can you solve this problem then? So I think there are 
to do you think we should uh, try to give an example like a concrete example of exactly. algorithmic a example would be the following suppose you have a search engine that displays advertising in response to a query and this advertising that is displayed along the search results depends on who you are and what your previous queries are and what the search engine believes about you okay mm -hmm. now suppose this search engine were to show has a pool of ads to show and where to show to women ads for some jobs that do not pay as well as the job as the ads for jobs that it showed to men in this case the system will be discriminating maybe it's not doing that on purpose maybe the designer of that system never wanted to have this disparity between the advertising that is shown for men and the advertising that is shown for women. Maybe it's even a result of how men and women click on these different ads that make a computing system believe that a high paying job is irrelevant for a woman. But the result, independently of why it happens, is that women will see uh, less ads for the high paying jobs and they will be harmed by this computing system. Mm -hmm. But how can you how can you fix this then on a on a technical level? So I think there are two main areas that concern us, like from computer science perspective. One is detection, so detecting that a computing system is discriminating, which is a very interesting field because sometimes is some the, the same techniques that you can use to uh, determine that a computing computer system is discriminating are tools that you can use to determine that the human driven decision making system is discriminatory right so the first step is to detect where discrimination happens and which are the groups that are affected and this usually requires some definition of what is a protected group and a protected group will be a, a group that has historically been at a, as a, at a disadvantage, right? So we mostly are concerned about discriminatory systems in which the group that is worse off because of the system is a group that already has some disadvantage. So starting from, we start from that definition of which are these disadvantaged groups or marginalized groups, uh, and then we detect whether these computer systems are having a negative impact of, over those people differently from over other people. That's detection. So and then comes mitigation. And mitigation is about replacing these systems by another system that is aware of these protected groups and reduces or minimizes or equalizes uh, some characteristic with respect to the non-protected group or the rest of the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one thing is to, you could probably design the system in a way, I mean, can you only do it afterwards, basically? Is it something that you can design from beginning, this built-in algorithmic fairness, or is it something that you can only observe when it's working and then you have to kind of correct the, the system as it work? So there, there are parallels between algorithmic fairness and a another field, which is data protection, right? So when you're talking about protecting data, sometimes, yes, you start thinking of, about things after the fact and you start thinking, okay, how am I going to secure this data that I have collected that is very personal and very sensitive and so on. Now, the, the dominant paradigm, I would say, for data protection is that data protection should be by default and by design, which means that you design the system to collect as little personal data as you need for a particular purpose, to keep it for the minimum amount of time, and to 
protected just from the beginning by design, by default. So here in algorithmic fairness, something similar happens, right? Ideally, you don't want to bring these issues after a system is created, and definitely you don't want to evaluate the system after it has been deployed. Instead, you want to create a process that starts with the mere with the that starts with the definition of what the goals of this system are and what this, what's the training data that you're going to use in this system, how are you going to evaluate it, and so on, that lead to a system that has certain guarantees guarantees about algorithmic fairness. Mm-hmm. So uh, what they're doing is studying what is uh, the so-called uh, socio-technical systems, no? that is yet another definition related with what, what Carlos was saying at the beginning. But the, the key point of this is that those uh, somehow autonomous systems are affecting uh, people, uh, the lives of, in the, of human beings, right, at the end. And if you extend this, um, at the end, they are affecting uh, societies in general. So um, in general, the systems that they study are already in production, uh, have been created by engineers, uh, and they're, the main goal of those engineers when creating those systems was to maximize predictive accuracy. To give an example, for example, in the in the context of medicine, medicine, this could be translated to the objective of maximizing the probability of giving a correct diagnosis for a given patient, or maybe in the context of mobility, predictive accuracy could be measured as the probability of a system proposing the best route for for a given driver. Right? Then uh, there is the key point, the central point of of algorithmic fairness, in my opinion, that is that uh, everybody working with machine learning knows that the perfect accuracy model does not exist. This means that uh, any model uh, that is created will commit uh, errors or failures when, when executing the, the predictions, when giving the predictions. Um, the stu- so basically, the study of the, these errors is what guides my research in these systems, right? Then uh, it has been proved that in general the pro- the, pro- the probability of, of a given model to commit a mistake uh, is bigger for certain groups of individuals, as, as Carlos was saying at the beginning. And for example, existing face-to-face uh, face recognition tools uh, offer lower performance for female faces than males, uh, but also for the dark skin faces when compared to white skin faces. Right. The fact is that as an example of intersectionality. Uh, the faces that are female faces plus dark skin uh, have even lo- lower performance for them. So the, the system is more prone to commit errors when classifying them. Then the, another important thing for me is to understand what is the scalability of these errors. To give an example, also a, a racist judge or misogynist, maybe a misogynist policeman could negatively affect a few people per day. Whereas a racist autonomous system maybe uh, regulating access to insurance could affect thousands or maybe millions of people in a short period of time. Then, in this context, uh, having these ideas in mind, what I'm studying is different aspects related to the development, the auditing, and the mitigation for these uh, social technical systems to, for them to become fair. Uh, in that sense, I, I have been more, um, more in, studying more in detail the, the data, the input data that uh, at the end creates, uh, provokes these systems to become uh, biased. Uh, and for example, we have recently published a paper proving how a limited set of uh, new adversarial samples added to a large data set 
could result in a system that has a similar accuracy as the original one, but results uh, to be way more unfair. Mm-hmm. So, so wait a second. So, so just so I understand yeah. correctly. So basically, if you have if you have a big data set, yes, it's enough to have just a few bad data, so to say, in there to skew the whole system. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So in the top in the field of adversarial machine learning, they have been studying how um, carefully crafted samples, just a limited amount of them, for example, five percent of the total amount of data could screw up the whole system, uh, making it uh, unable to uh, to give uh, accurate predictions. What we are doing here is uh, having a different point of view. We didn't want to, so we wanted to model what could be the worst case uh, in the field of algorithmic fairness. For that, what we wanted to, to model was uh, a skilled attacker adding data, not with the purpose of creating a non-accurate model, but with the purpose of creating an unfair model in a manner that is not easy to be, to be detected. So we understood that most of the models are evaluated solely in base of or their accuracy. So basically, we wanted to limit the effect and accuracy, trying to make the model uh, more unfair, in the sense that, uh, that most of the mistakes that this model will have will be always placed for individuals who are part of, a, of the minority group or the disadvantaged group. And this is possible. This is the the, uh, the last work we we presented a few days ago. Also, another thing that we are we are doing with socio-technical systems is that we are studying a uh, system in production that we can say is something similar to a dating app, right? Where they are uh, creating links between people, where the system was initially giving random recommendations, then. It was improved to learning from the from the predictions that were accepted by the users of, between those random recommendations, and the subsequent versions of, of such system were iteratively created from a sample of data that was affected by the recommendations given by the previous versions of, of the algorithm. What is happening here is that uh, without any intention, the engineers were creating this feedback loop between the initial biases in the population the next version of the algorithm, and then the information that this population was exposed to. What we have observed is at the end, they were, were maximizing existing biases from the beginning. And I think this is related to something that you were saying at the beginning, right? Where do those biases come from? And this is a good example. So I think most of the, uh, there are different examples of this happening where they start by maybe focusing in other parts of the UI, and then and they start by giving random recommendations to the people, and then they learn from these recommendations. But as we know that humans are already biased, so they, you may have, for example, a certain percentage of racist people, racist users, and it could be reflected afterwards in, in your model. So basically, the, the technical system is um, kind of amplifying the whatever human bias or error that's in there and just exactly. amplifying it. And okay. Exactly. Um, so the, I think an important issue here is whether the system is discriminating intentionally or not intentionally. And this distinction, it's very difficult to make. So most of the computing systems we interact with are black boxes, are designed by people we don't know with methods, methodologies that are not transparent. And we don't know 
whether they introduced certain biases or not in these systems. And we cannot prove them right or we cannot prove that those systems are discriminatory or non-discriminatory. So David research shows that indeed, if, if you have a malicious person trying to introduce bias in this computing system by carefully selecting certain data points and omitting others, then you can create a bias system and it will be very hard to tell that that was done intentionally. So, so that is, the solution here is the open science as to many problems in our world then. So basically, if the code would be transparent, right? If, um, if there would be always access to kind of how it's the program is built, right? Is that I, what you're saying? I think it's a mixture of transparency and accountability through other means that are not necessarily all complete open transparency. I would say we should favor systems that are open and use free software, open source software, and open platforms. But there are some cases where commercial entities will never want to disclose the their internal workings, right, and their internal algorithms. In that case, auditing should be possible. Just as you can financially audit a company, you should be able to algorithmically audit a company. Mm -hmm. Is there any example of that being done? Like, is there any... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So there are there are some you can you can finally like even even um, organizations that provide uh, algorithmic uh, audits to to companies or algorithmic audits to uh, to organizations or to or to software. Right in 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 our group we have done a few algorithmic audits for for companies, but. Uh, this is something that can be done, and 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 you do it in in a sense. The the idea of having an auditor is similarly to a financial audit is that you have some confidentiality, right? So your company doesn't need to disclose everything to everybody. It just needs to have uh, a disclosure of this algorithm to a certain party that can certify that what the company is doing is correct, is legal, or is not discriminatory. Mm -hmm. uh, my topic is uh, about. Uh the machine learning based risk assessment of uh, recidivism. Um, we know that uh, risk assessment is like a necessary process in many important decisions, uh, such as public health, education, uh, auditing, and also criminal justice. For example, in the US, as an example, a widely used program named uh, COMPASS has been found to have biases across races and gender uh, for recidivism. What does it, it mean? It, predict, exactly? it predicts uh, if uh, an inmate uh, recidivates, recidivate, uh, for example, in two years. Okay, it so it basically like a, does yes. crime again. Uh, yes, just to, um, yes okay. recommit a crime. Yes. Okay. okay. And so, um, so it, there were some... Uh, some uh, studies regarding Compass, but uh, the Compass uh, developer, which is North Point, um, rejected uh, that, uh, those studies because they claim that their algorithm is fair because it is well calibrated. So, um, and also uh, they exhibited the, that they have accuracy, equity, and predictive parity. What does it mean? Accuracy equity means that uh, the, the prediction that is obtained uh, for African American um, versus um, white Americans, uh, they, uh, they, the predictions uh, have the same accuracy, meaning that um, in terms of um, uh, 
the uh, some metrics uh, for the accuracy of the estimates. Uh, they they said that uh, so they have this predictive parity because and also they they showed that they they have calibration, which means that uh, the the base rate of each group um, is to somehow near to the average uh, of the probability of the predictions. Okay, so just for for me, so that means basically that they can predict equally well whether a white person will commit a crime again or a black person. Yes. Okay. And I, that I, for I that, yes, for that they have data to back it up to show that this is actually that they uh, they have a fair assessment. Yes, that. but uh, there are lots of the definition. Uh, there are many different definitions of algorithmic fairness, and because of that, I. Um, I um, I mm, I preferred to uh, say some uh, to explain some definitions like the calibration is one of the fairness definition, and also uh, the statistic statistical parity is another definition. So mm, it is impossible uh, to um, to satisfy all of the fairness definition simultaneously. So because of that, um, the the rejection rejection of the study that was done uh, by ProPublica uh, from the uh, Compass uh, developers uh, was because because in terms of some definitions fairness definitions their algorithms were fair was fair but not in terms of more than uh, two definitions of the fairness so this is um, the incompatibility. Uh, between among the fairness definition, which which shows that it is impossible to satisfy all of them simultaneously. Is so, there any is there any um, software out there which meets all the criteria for fairness? No, is there like an ideal. No, no, no. Lots of there are lots of studies that uh, shows this impossibility. Uh, and why is it impossible? Sorry for interrupting, but because, why is it impossible? No, no, because because they are incompatible with each other. Ah, okay. And so, so there. What what is the solution? Is the, the trade offs? So there are trade offs between these different metrics. So um, it depends on the application. Uh, so uh, they can choose uh, the definition which is uh, more necessary for that application. So, for example, um, um, some in some the studies um, they try to mitigate uh, like. The bias, the bias, uh, algorithmic bias, by satisfying equalized odds, which means that um, avoiding disparate mistreatment, avoiding error uh, rates um, among uh, different groups. Like, for example, uh, when uh, when uh, in nationality, when a foreigner uh, receives more false positives than. Uh, Spanish, this is a disparity in the error rates. So they try to uh, avoid this disparate mistreatment. I think I, I think you have to explain it again. I'm sorry, I didn't really get it. So um, what does disparity treatment means that two different nations or cats or dogs are treated differently in the eyes of the algorithm or? For example, for example, uh, when um, uh, the foreigners, the uh, group. And if we uh, divide by um, nationality, uh, in the inmates into foreigners and the nationals, mm -hmm. uh, and when we uh, we 
obtain the predictions. After obtaining the predictions, we see that the false uh, positives means the people who are uh, not really recidivists, but uh, they were predicted as recidivism uh, in foreigners is more than in Spanish. So this is the disparate mistreatment, which means that uh, in the error rate of each group, there is a disparity. Ah, okay. Now I understand. Okay, so yes. um, so basically, there's a more negative outcome predicted yes. for one group over the other, and that's just a result of a bias introduced. Yes, this this okay. this, this mistre- uh, despite mistreatment can be in terms of false negative or false positive rates mm-hmm. uh, of the predictions. It depends on the application. So, but in for example, in criminal justice, uh, the more important is the false positive uh, error rates. Um, the false positive rates, and also um, some. So also there, uh, there are some um, studies regarding a statistical parity in which the same probability of receiving, for example, a positive class prediction is considered for different groups. But this, uh, this fairness definition, statistical parity, is not suitable for criminal justice because the base rate uh, of the recidivism is different. Uh, for 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 example, nas- uh, national and foreigners. For example, maybe the base rate. I mean, by the base rate means the 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 rate of recidivism, the real rate of recidivism in foreigners is different uh, from uh, the base rate of recidivism in nationals. So, a statistical parity is not a good uh, terms of the f- uh, fairness uh, in criminal justice. Okay, but um, just, I mean, really for the layperson here, and I see also Carlos wants to say something, but um, so basically you have all the statistics going back, let's say, 100 years, who was in jail and for what, and probably associated with that there's data on uh, nationality, skin color, gender, uh whatever, you name it, socioeconomic class. So um, why is it so, I mean, the predictions are made based on the statistics, right? Yes. So where does the error come in? Because you you could argue that there is a certain, I mean, sure, prediction is never completely accurate, but in the end, you do base it on data that's available, right? Yes, maybe the, the data sometimes is biased uh, against those groups. So this is something that we have the data. Okay. That was maybe historically they were gathered uh, in a biased way by human. Mm-hmm. Yes, Marcy mentioned some incompatibility results, right? She said it's impossible to fulfill all of these criteria of fairness at the same time. And the reason is is quite, it's, it's a mathematical impossibility, it's a logical impossibility. It's not that the systems are designed wrongly. So, for instance, suppose that a young people have more car accidents than old people, right, when driving. And suppose you want to do a fair insurance policy that treats equally young and old people. Then you will have to pay a price for that. So you will be either punishing older people with a higher premium because you want to equalize them with younger people, or you will be taking too much risk with the young people by giving them them an insurance premium that is too low compared considering their risk. So the fact that the two groups have different base rates makes it impossible to create an, uh, a system that will fulfill every notion of fairness. So you have to choose. There are trade-offs to be made. And that's where the input from the society comes, because we don't want, as computing 
technology people, we don't want to be making decisions that don't correspond to that that are not ours to make, like choosing between two evils uh, that are introduced by an algorithmic system. Mm -hmm. um, but this is something, I mean, isn't it the same thing as in this uh, self-driving cars dilemma? So basically, um, if they, uh, I don't know, if there's accident about to happen and the car can choose, well, the car, I mean, the system, the car chooses then, do I run over a, uh, a child or uh, three grandmothers? Um, that um, basically, um, it's in the end, it's the algorithm that chooses, right? It, it's similar in the sense that you need uh, input from society, right, to, to be able to decide what's what's right and what's wrong in this case. And in the case of algorithmic discrimination is that you need these, these metrics. Depending on the metric you want to optimize, you will get a different system. And what is the metric that you care about is it's important, right? In the case of criminal recidivism, to what extent society values crime, crime reduction and to what extent society values the freedom of people who are actually not dangerous or will not commit a new crime. Right. Every time a judge releases a person or gives them an alternative to prison, the judge is making a decision. He's, take, he's saying the risk of this person is low, the value for, of freedom is higher, and, and, and as a society we're willing to give this person parole or an alternative to prison because that's just better for society uh, like considering the costs and benefits. And the algorithms have to make these same choices, but for that they need input. And that input is not in the data, it's, it's, it's a decision of society. So Marcia, that's what you're saying, right? That your research is basically showing that um, all these predictive algorithms for uh, recidivism are not correct. Yes, I mean, uh, not in terms of all of the definitions, mm -hmm. fairness definitions. Francesco, you wanted to add something? Yep, I would like to stress this idea of... I'm adding another dimension, basically, of what you were asking before. So basically, about uh, if there, there are any way of defining universal definition of fairness, or in general, if there is a kind of systematic way of detecting bias. This kind of becomes complex. If you think about that, the bias cannot... It's not only included in the data itself. Like what I'm saying is like there are three different steps that you can try to assess or detect or mitigate the bias. You can detect it in the data. So the data is a, some sort of bias that gets you some skew outcome, as was mentioning before David. But also it can be the algorithm itself. So you want to intervene in the in-processing phase. And this is not because of the data itself, but because of the algorithm, of the, day, of the, of the way it's been conceived. And also... There's a third dimension, it's called post-processing. So you basically, you go through the pipeline and you see there is no real problem. But then when you go at the end, you go to look at the consequences of the output, you see that there is a sort of discrimination itself. And this is another level. So you can basically go through step by step over the whole pipeline. And depending on which phase you're assessing, you can detect or mitigate different level of discrimination. This is what I'm trying to say. And also, I would like to stress this uh, focus on about the definitions. So uh, it's like Marzia was focusing, was talking about uh, uh, machine learning definition. She got kind of a broad view of different definitions. I was like the impossibility to meet more than one at the same time. But I would like to also to stress that when you change area, so when you change 
domain and you switch to ranking the recommender system, the, the point of view becomes completely different. So there is not only about to meet some fairness definition, but also accounting for more than one players involved. So what I'm saying is like when you use rankings or recommender systems and you want to try to be fair, the fairness definition doesn't apply only for one stakeholder, but applies for consumers, apply for the providers and also for the platform owner. So if you can imagine a streaming music platform, like there are many popular ones right now that I use it. And the fairness usually is not a real problem for the user most of the time. So the user try to get the most accurate possible recommendation of the songs that he likes more. But then maybe there's a problem on the other way around. So for the providers, for the artists, right? So the fairness there doesn't only apply for one group of users, but needs to be considered to having a multi-view perspective. So it's not only about the like it's not about the definition, but also the point of view. It's also about the domain that you look at. I'm still a bit kind of curious and confused about the technical side of this. About two things about technology. So one is technologically how how the problem happens, and technologically how the problem is solved. Right? Is that your question? Yeah. Right. Okay. So technologically, why the problem happens is uh, so many algorithmic fairness issues can be traced either to unfair training data. Mm -hmm. So data that, for instance, data about hiring practices from a company and you want to create a new automated system and you don't know that your company has actually been discriminating against a certain group for a long time. And you train on that data and the system learns all the bad practices of your company and reproduce them, reproduces them. So that's one way in which this happened. But there is another way which is more subtle and it is the fact that many of these algorithms are designed to make decisions in situations where it's very difficult to be accurate. So for instance, deciding whether a person will commit a new crime in two years is something very difficult, even for experts and for machines with all the data in the world, you can never get a very precise answer to that question because it's a prediction, right? It's probabilistic. So what happens is that there are, you, the, the, in, in the end, the prediction is being done on the basis of many features that contribute a little bit to the answer, but none of them is really definitive. So you have many weak signals that you aggregate to create a prediction, right? And when this situation, when you have this situation and there is a signal that is weak, but is not as weak as the others, then systems tend to latch onto these signals and emphasize them and, and even exaggerate them. So that's why sometimes algorithmic fairness is introduced by an algorithm. So an algorithm that tries to make sense of a lot of data and finds only very weak signals, but finds a signal such as gender, which is very powerful because it determines, it determines many things in society, and it uses that signal to make a decision. And, that, and then it's, it, it engages in discrimination. Basically, so the systems are uh, designed to find something in the noise, basically. So there's no option of not finding something. They have to find something, and therefore they will find something. Is that basically what you're saying? It's not that the signal is... is it's not that the signal is noise. So it's, for instance, it's true that young people have more car accidents than old people. But that cannot be the only basis to determine the insurance premium. 
there are many other things. And maybe I'm a young person or an old person, but I'm different from the others. But the system treats me like the average. Or worse, the system sees that young is perhaps the only very relevant signals and it exaggerates and, and it creates like a big gap between young and old people that doesn't have to be there, right? Okay, so that would also be uh, in case of, for example, predicting who's going to commit a crime in two years again or not. So basically, if there is this, uh, you have that that many inmates who are of black skin color in US, then the system maybe latches on that because it's the most prominent difference and not the, maybe there are no other differences otherwise. Exactly, exactly. Okay. It, it exaggerates, it, it finds some discrepancy between groups. And if there is nothing else, then the system go, go with, goes with that. And, and, and in the end, ends up exaggerating something that, that was there in the data. And is there a technical solution to that? Yeah, so the technical solution is like Marcy was, was talking about all these, these metrics that you can apply and there are methods that make it in which you can evaluate a system and then even design them. And they come to things that Francesco mentioned, which are one, you can change the training data. Two, you can change the algorithm. Or three, you can wait until the algorithm executes and then do some post-processing on the output of the algorithm to, ens to ensure that the results for different groups are brought together a bit closer than what they are if you let the algorithm run without any modification. I, I want just to provide maybe another example for reinforcing also this idea of the what Francesco introduced before about the three-step, the pre-existing bias that might exist in the data set and uh, the bias that algorithm can um, can introduce or uh, and uh, how to tackle these different uh, things. Because in uh, one of the last studies that we did was about uh, gender bias in uh, music recommendation. And just uh, for giving a broader sense, gender bias, we know that it's a type of discrimination for a group of people based on their gender, and it's, it's far from being an emerging problem because gender discrimination, we know, has its roots in cultural practices historically related with social political power differential. So it's not something new. But we know also that uh, recent reports uh, in uh, find that the disproportionate treatment of female artists in Western music industry. So in the case of music, uh, we know that uh, people tend to listen to have a pre-existing gender bias to listen more to male artists. So what we wanted to understand is if recommender system uh, were able or are able to uh, amplify this bias or at the contrary, or reduce this bias. And for doing that, we create a system uh, in, uh, let's say, in laboratory. In uh, we simulate some condition where uh, we were able to show that recommendation can actually impact gender bias in music preference. And using a, a binary classification where user and artist are classified as male or female, we have shown that different at different levels uh, uh, the bias the pre-existing bias or the bias that people already have so not uh, created by the recommender system is propagated by recommender system so this is a, a kind of example of um, the problem where uh, 
uh, was existing before, but then the recommender system can amplify it. So uh, the final outcome is that uh, people who tend to listen to more male artists will will listen to uh, more and more male artists and female artists will be discriminated in these settings. Is this something that we have created, this problem of amplifying biases and driving the world towards more biases? Or is this something that always existed and we just kind of doing the same thing, but on a bigger scale? It's something that already existed before uh, recommender system, but also before streaming services, because uh, maybe also, as David said, we are now uh, experiencing uh, more maybe this effect. We are more aware about it, but uh, there are several studies from psychology of music, sociology of music, where uh, already it has been found that um, also maybe in uh, older media like television or radio, there were, there have been a, a bias in the exposure of uh, not male artists. So it's the the this, the phenomenon is the phenomenon is not new. What is new is how it can be. Or what is interesting for us, what we are studying, is how effectively the algorithm behind the recommender system is amplifying this bias. And what we wanted to prove is that, is that the, the pre-existing bias, so what maybe our studies in uh, psychology of music already seen, so that uh, male tends to listen to more male artists than female artists, uh, was true in the data. And then uh, how the recommender system uh, amplify or not the, 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 say the, the bias. But what we are seeing is also that um, creating an upside down situation where uh, in an ideal world, uh, you, the listeners have a much higher preference towards female artists. Still, we find evidence of an exacerbation of that bias, which means that the system per se uh, does not create bias, but uh, at least in this case, it, it amplifies the bias, pre-existing bias. So, uh, the fact that uh, in the music industry, their uh, female artists uh, or not male artists are not so represented as male artists, is clearly the main problem and the source of the problem. So a mm -hmm. uh, recommender system, at least uh, in what we would like to have, what we would like from a recommender system is that they might be able to uh, contrast this, uh, this effect and not to amplify, but to reduce, to reduce the bias, for example. So there is a question about whether the uh, algorithmic fairness has, uh, there is a question of whether these issues of discrimination are new and they are because of algorithms. And of course they are not. And I think something that has happened with the work on algorithmic fairness is that we have helped uncover discrimination that was already present in the data, right? So as people have studied, for instance, Compass, they have said, okay, let's look closely at who is in jail. Let's look closely and what is the type of uh, who, let's look closely at the record of each judge, even an individual judge. Let's look at whether there are some more lenient judges and, and some more strict judge, like the humans. Uh, let's look at the hiding practices of this company or that company. So the fact that more data about these decisions is available makes it easy to study biases introduced by algorithms, but it also helps to uncover discrimination by people. That's interesting. The main problem there is also, I mean, another complex problem 
It's connected to something we already touched at the initial of our conversation about the open science, open availability, so the transparency of the code and the data itself. But this is kind of kind of tricky because usually to assess this kind of systems, in particular in ranking or recommended system, you have to access to the world data, right? So, and then you have to deal with uh, privacy concerns. You have to deal with uh, data viability to the accessibility because maybe it violates some particular laws that you are not allowed to, to get access to this information, no? Because they are really sensitive ones. So, for example, in my case, when I study bias in social network, what I really do is understanding if the demographics play a role inside the recommender system pipeline, no? So in a recent work we were been doing, uh, we've been start analyzing how the recommender in a social network, so the classical who to follow on Twitter or like uh, the next friend suggestion on Facebook. So these kind of systems are kind affected by the homophily generated by the attribute, by the sensitive attribute of the, of the, of the users, like the gender or like the age. So this kind of information, so the first question you, will, you may wonder is like, do you have this kind of information? Do, can you access this kind of information for doing this analysis? The first answer is no. I mean, most of the times you cannot access this kind of data because of many different concerns surrounding this kind of information, right? Because you cannot have access massively to the distribution of the uh, women and men over Twitter or, you, or in Facebook as well, because like there are, these are sensitive information. So yeah, but I guess I mean I guess Twitter has this information, right? Exactly. I mean, no, exactly. Okay. Uh, no, actually, no. Actually, no. Yeah, like you, no. you may wonder. Actually, no. For example, in Twitter, you you cannot really stick to. I mean, you can try to infer the demographics, but to some extent, I mean, you cannot get full information of the users. So they. So in our case, we were there were some open access data set that, that were accessible for us, and we could perform the the experiments proving some kind of issues related to the, vis to the visibility given to the groups of user because of the homophily I was mentioning before. So if you can measure this homophily because you have the demographics, then you go through the study. Otherwise, it becomes tricky, right? So this is my point. So it's not always uh, straight going from the data to the, so to the phenomenon because maybe you can guess, you can infer that this phenomenon is happening but having access to the data is not always uh, simple, not always trivial. And it's, just, it's, the case, it's, it's the same case for music streaming services for, to some extent. So like in that case, you can try to retrieve the metadata of the artists, of the groups of users, but still having the general overview, the general picture of the platform is kind of complex, right? Because as long as you, don't, you are not the platform, you cannot know the truth. This is my point. So, how okay? So basically, without uh, companies giving out kind of their uh, well, their property uh, algorithms. Uh, basically, there's you're saying there's no way to assess it, or is it there? There are ways, but they're not exact. It's just an estimate. What I'm trying to say is like the problem maybe cannot look like so new itself. Like it's something that you may wonder even before in the past, but right mm -hmm. now it's becoming more and more central. So companies are becoming also 
more open, more transparent in some ex- to some to some extent, and also datasets are released. But it, still, releasing also this kind of datasets, even partially ones, is, is is not that trivial, right? Because you have to mm-hmm. you have to meet some particular criteria. There are many concerns around. So still, it, it, it's a sort of a, it's a combined effort from the research community and the industrial one, I guess. So at the end of the day, if they can match and mix, you, you will you will get the result. This is but ima- okay, but imagine like for a, for the ideal world, uh, if you would want to fix this problem of um, algorithmic uh, bias, uh, which um, amplifies our human bias, um, if you want to fix it, basically, uh, what would you really need to be able to just solve it? <laughs> so basically to know exactly what's going on, to design strategies, how to mitigate it. You would need access to the data, right? The code, but it's not over yet, you know, there is a, like, okay, imagine, no? you can fix this bias. So you have mm-hmm. the day zero, you have this problem, you, got, you can access, mm-hmm. have access to everything that you have in front of you. And you, mm-hmm. you can exactly go like stick to the point and say, okay, this phenomenon is quite evident. We can mitigate it, right? So you are able mm-hmm. to assess it. But it's, the problem is, it's not over yet. Because as long as you don't provide new data coming from the policy that you just applied, so imagine that you apply this new fair policy, mm-hmm. as long as you don't go there, you will not be that sure that you are not raising other issues. So this is another dimension. So like what you are asking is like over the time, if you have all the information, I mean, if you have access to all the possible information, you can solve the problem. Maybe in the static snapshot of the problem you are tackling, maybe yes. But then the question is, what about the long term? What about the the time dimension, right? Because Mm -hmm. after that, you generate new fair data that meets the specific criteria that you define as fair which kind of situation are coming over and over. So this okay. is another interesting dimension about that we, we are not there yet. So like, as I can tell you, so it's like there's a, there's a huge work to do yet. So, but yes, the time is another interesting dimension. So by solving each problem, you create new new interesting problems. Huh? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so you'll, you'll, have, you'll have job security forever. <laughs> Okay, David, maybe like as a last word, word because we already been talking for one hour, so. Yes, I will try to be very strict to the point. So uh, in the last part of this of this talk, we were talking about uh, detection. Uh, in, in in order to, to do mitigation, the first thing you need to do is, is detection. And uh, this detection, I was calling it uh, auditing at the beginning. But there is another point of view that we are not addressing here because basically we are uh, computer scientists and we tend to, to solve and to approach everything from the technology point of view. But there is another point of view, which is the, the point of view of the society. So as Francesco was saying, if you are Twitter and you, can, uh, you want to do a more fair recommender, uh, according to the definition introduced by Carlos, which is the group, uh, fairness definition. Basically, what you need to do is to first of all group individuals, right, and assess whether there are different performances in average for this for the different groups that you have created. The question here is: if I am one of those individuals accessing this platform, what can I do? What are the tools that I have on my hand to uh, first of all to detect if I'm tr- being treated in an unfair way? 
And the only way you can do it is by comparing your how the system is treating you to uh, someone else, right? Uh, this is not here yet, but uh, maybe if at some point is, well, we, we combine these technical solutions with giving more power to the mass to maybe correct somehow the, the, the systems that are affecting their lives by saying, okay, I think uh, I should have access this credit because in general my, my, I don't know, my savings are more than this other person that was given with this credit access, but I was rejected. Um, maybe you, we can use this information in the future to correct the systems, but the, the reality is that we are not here yet. So we are, we are not offering societies the, the possibility to say, I think I was not treated in a fair way. So this is uh, very interesting for, for, from the point of view of the auditing and detection of possible biases existing. And then I wanted to add another thing that I think has been around during the whole task, uh, talk, which is uh, what can do engineers do here? No? What can do engineers uh, to mitigate bias, to detect that, and so on? And the reality, as we were saying at the beginning, is that mo mostly these biases are not intentionally created. They appear because they were somewhere in the data, and then they were amplified by the model, and so on. The reality is that, uh, in general, uh, as I was saying, engineers care about the, the accuracy, which is just one single metric. But we have not uh, been tough. We have not been trained to care about other metrics, such the the fairness concerns. No, so maybe one possible solution for for the future would be to extend this this research, and also to teach in the universities to new engineers how to approach this type of problems from a different perspective that also uh, takes care of the ethics. Mm. So that will be my, my contribution. So just like open science, more training, um, awareness, basically awareness. Yes. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just have uh, the first thing you said, I just found interesting because basically also um, the data on whether people are treated differently, it's also very personal data, right? So it's also not very easy to come by. I That's mean, true. And, and the, there is another point of view, which is that basically predictions and classifications, uh, which is basically the, the core of the machine learning itself, is about different, creating differentiations, differentiations between, between people. So to treat people uh, differently according to some features or to some characteristics of these of this people. So at the end, the main goal of creating these systems is to treat people differently depending on certain attributes. What we don't want to have is uh, these attributes to be sensitive attributes such as gender, such as age, or and so on. Hmm. Okay. That, is there something that one can personally do to um, make sure that the search engine believes, let's say, I don't want to say good things about you, but things about you that you're going to be treated fairly. Carlos, you mentioned in one of your first sentences, you said it's about what the search engine believes with you. And just what you said, David, it seems like, you know, we, we're stuck in, in as, as a user, we're stuck 
with yeah. this kind of unfairness? I, I don't, is there something we can do? I don't think this is a, really a matter of responsibility from the parts of the consumers and so on. Like, uh, I think it's a, that's a, a diversion of things, right? So it's like when when you have these big people, like these big companies polluting the environment, and you tell people, no, you what you have to do is to turn off your the lights at home, like when you're not using them. It's true. But that doesn't mean that they should not do something themselves or that they, 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 there is like a, an imbalance here on power and knowledge. So I, I would say that there is very little as a consumer that you can do, uh, but the GDPR, like uh, the legislation of data protection in Europe, it allows you to, for instance, object to automated data processing. You can object to automated data processes. You can request your data. You can ask which inferences have been done about you. Like if, for instance, maybe you have never given your gender to some uh, e-commerce website, but you can ask them, okay, what do you know about me? Do you, do you, be, do you think you know if I'm a man or, if I'm, or I'm a woman? And, and if you know it, like, what is this? And they, they give the GDPR gives you also the right to, recti- uh, to delete that data or to challenge that data and correct it. So if I always get ads for dresses, I'm assuming they know that I'm a female or that I dress as a female. They they may or may not like that's a, the other problem of wrong profiling. Like I, I bought a skirt from for my wife like uh, some years ago, and I, I I still bombarded with ads for skirts like and they are not even my size. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's the same thing. Also, if you buy a wedding dress, you will still like three years later still be shown wedding dresses, and it's like. Why are you not starting to show me, I don't know, car seats or? Yeah, but but and 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 this thing about transparency is also important because, for instance, these models that, uh, like, say, David, Francesco, Marci, Lorenzo create, like, these things are very complex mathematical objects, and 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 even ourselves, like, if if you were to give me, okay, this is the the vector of features for you from Amazon, and I, I wouldn't be able to to really read much into that or or this is the model and this is like a huge like a mathematical object that i I am supposed to understand and maybe i I do have the background technological knowledge to understand that but it's so complex that i can't so it's not just a matter of transparency it's also it's transparency to the degree that it allows me to make the system accountable for its decisions Um, well, that was really um, not a topic I was feeling comf- completely comfortable with, I must say. It was a lot of uh, not very complicated concepts, maybe, but it's kind of a new way of thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just found it interesting because when we got off the recording tool, the first thing you said was, well, what does that have to do with open science? And yeah. It's now been a few weeks since we have had the interview and now we're finally doing the outro. And I've been thinking about this question the whole entire time. Like, what does this have to do? I think it's a super interesting topic. And I think it's something that we definitely need to look at because every single individual is somehow influenced by it. But I've been working with what is this idea? What does it have to do with open science? And in the beginning, I was like, it has so much to do with open science. And I realize now that I've I've concrete, con- how do you say that in English? Concreticized it? That's not an English word. <laughs> Made more concrete? <laughs> Made more concrete. Well, I've narrowed it down to that it really doesn't have very much to do with open science, so I agree totally with you. Um, but it does have to do with uh, access to knowledge. 
So if you have an algorithm or if you have a belief system that an algorithm has about you and you're trying to access knowledge and you search in a search engine for anything, you're always going to be finding results that kind of fit in your mindset anyway, right? Yeah. And so I think that on a broad level, I mean, on a detailed level, it doesn't have anything to do with open science, but I think like on a meta level, it has so much to do with open science. See, and I ha- I came to the opposite conclusion. So I was also thinking about it. Uh, like, what does it have to do with open science? And I totally came to the conclusion it has a lot to do with open science, actually. Um, in the sense of, you know, how we talk about opening, uh, like open access as an ox- access to publications, right? For example, um, in order um, to really verify whether something is true or not, you do have to have access to all the information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, uh, in case of papers, well, you have to have the methods clearly spelled out, uh, which usually is not the case because there's always a space limit and blah, 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 and all this uh yeah, artificial walls that we put in place for disclosing all the methods and all its details, basically. Um, it has something to do with how we document um, the protocols. Um, we also need access to all the data, right, to be able to actually verify whether the experiment, whether the conclusions from the experiment um, are right or not. I mean, if we see something, maybe maybe we see some indication of that maybe something was not interpreted correctly, the only way to see whether we would arrive to the same conclusion is to use the same data. So have the transparency, have the possibility of uh, basically looking into the into the like the details of the behind the, the paper, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is something what uh, algorithmic bias is a bit about. I mean, not the concept itself, but how do you how do you fix the algorithmic biases? And uh, what they were talking about is that there is this two uh, well two ways you could do it. One way is the disclosure, and the other one is the audit. And audit is kind of the the peer review, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also the peer review has to be open and transparent. So I think it does have to do a lot with open science, just in a not the concept itself maybe uh, as such, but uh, the mechanism behind like how to how to fix broken algorithm is like how to fix broken scientific system how to fix the algorithm is kind of the same mechanism can you be a little bit more concrete um yeah so i mean um basically to detect a bias uh you need to know uh where it came from right i mean basically to well, to know where it came from you have to be able to have access to a data set the algorithm was trained on um, so there we talk about, I mean, you could talk about open data or fair data, even metadata, right? And you have to have the access to the protocols. So, uh, you know, how, how was the code compiled? Um, how, I mean, basically the open source, uh, just like in any scientific paper, you would want to know like how much of substance A was pipetted uh, with substance B to uh, on which cell type to elicit uh, this and this response, which was recorded in this and this way. So I see parallels there, basically. So basically, so I, basically yeah. you're saying to make algorithms more fair, you have to use open data. 
yeah, the open science principles, basically, or okay. the same concepts as in open science. And therefore, I came to a conclusion that has a lot to do with open science. <laughs> because basically the same remedy there, you know, as mm-hmm. for uh, reproducibility in science or seeing, you know, um, like on one hand, yes, giving access to knowledge to everybody, but also this uh, accountability and, um, you know, building on each other's work and understanding where things came from and uh, how we draw conclusions, how we generate knowledge that applies for um, algorithms as well, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that we run into this issue a lot when we're talking about any kind of tools or any kind of projects or ideas that are about open science, that it's like, what what, what kind of, how is the research system, what is it built upon? Mm-hmm. And then what the results are. And if it's built upon fairness, accountability, and transparency, then a lot of the problems, then we don't have a lot of the problems. But if mm-hmm. it's not built on that, then it's like trying to find solutions, I'm not exactly sure how to bring it together. I have this like picture in my mind of three different levels that if everything is fine on the fundament, then we don't have the problems later. But right now it's not fine on the fundament. So we have the problems and it's like, where do you start from the solution? Like from the bottom or from the top or from the middle? Does that make any sense? Yeah, but I think, yeah, I mean, every level, right? I mean, and also to be fair, um, I think there are instances where um, transparency definitely is not possible. And I mean, there all this talk about... Um, um, as open as necessary, uh, no, as open as possible, as closed as necessary. And I think this also applies to code, right? I mean, there are also uh, business secrets. There are, uh, I don't know, government secrets, whatever, I mean, or uh, just uh, sensible data out there which should not be disclosed and be transparent for everybody. Um, And I think there's also interesting area there where we have to find mechanisms how to how to be able to audit that data rather than um, have it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was also something that uh, we touched upon in the interview that uh, not only disclosure, but also the the possibility of audit um, would be a good way to ensure transpa- uh, transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. I think we should really do an episode also on synthetic data. Yeah. Because I think if we talk about audit and we talk about like, have yeah, Let's let's end on that. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that uh, was it for today. Uh, thank you for listening. This was another episode of the Orion Open Science Podcast, delivered to you by the Orion Open Science Project, funded by the European Commission. The music was composed um, and produced by Fabio de Miguel. Our sound editor, Paul Oliveira, makes this podcast sound as good as possible. <laughs> and uh, yes, you can uh, follow us on social media, on Twitter under Orion, um, sorry, OOSP underscore OrionPod. Or you can write us an email to Orion at mtc minus berlin.de. So see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.